What a powerful truth to sing. If, if God could, could take everything away from you, and it could still be well with your soul, and you could sing a song like that, that's a place of maturity. That's a place of great dependence upon the Lord. A beautiful truth. Well, for the, for the Christian, there's no higher compliment than to be called a godly person. You could be a lot of things as a Christian, but nothing means more than to be godly. You could be a faithful Sunday school teacher. You could be a long-time deacon. You could be a consistent member with perfect attendance. You could be involved in every church activity that Lakeside offers and come religiously. But none of these matter if you are not godly. Now, some of you might be thinking to yourself, the highest compliment I've ever been paid? Well, hold on, let me test this out. Jog my memory back a little bit. Now, that was when I wore that one dress. and now, I wouldn't be thinking that. You, know, you, you might be. Got some compliment. Maybe it was when you got that one haircut. And people made a lot of remarks. Uh-huh. <laughs> What if it was when someone asked you, do you work out? <laughs> then they followed up with, because you should. Uh, <laughs> uh, what, what if maybe you're a parent and, and someone told you, well, I wish my kids were as well behaved as, as yours. Um, what if it was that friend of yours that said, out of all my friends, you're the best at being single. Yeah. I'm still trying to figure out if that's a compliment or not. Uh, But maybe it was this, when you were told that you have a beautiful family. You're like, that that meant a lot to me when they said that. What about your boss? When your boss told you that you are the hardest worker that he, she has ever had. And you already respected that boss a lot. That meant a lot to you. What if it was when that person said, you are never late to a thing? That was never said to me. So uh, maybe it was when your husband told you that he doesn't know another woman who could love him and care for his family better than you. We've heard a lot of compliments, but, but still test it out. There's no higher compliment for the Christian than to be told that you're a godly person. These are all nice, and they show us uh, the things actually that are important to us. Because if those things are important to you, and, and you get paid a compliment, and they're related to those things, and they're going to feel really good to you, and they're going to go a long way. But if our hearts really are matched up with God's heart, we're on the same wavelength with God, then we would care most. We would care a lot more about being godly than worldly in any way. The Bible has a lot to say about godliness. That's no surprise. Paul tells Timothy uh, to look at godliness a certain way. And he says this in 1 Timothy 
For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. In every way. As it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So if you just think about that, every ounce of effort going into becoming a godly young man or a godly man, a godly woman, is not wasted. It's valuable. Every effort to become more godly is valuable. It's more valuable than working out, eating healthier, saving money, and working hard. As valuable as those are. And pursuing a godly life is not just about a reward. Then you say, yeah, yeah, I know. When I get to heaven, there's a reward. Well, that is true. But it also promises to benefit you in this life as well. You have to catch that in that verse. Jerry Bridges, someone who's written well on this topic and his excellent book called The Practice of Godliness. The Practice of Godliness. You can check it out in your bulletin. It might be featured in there, I think. Um, But uh, this is what he says. This is godliness. He says, God-centeredness, in other words, devotion to God, and it's God-likeness, or Christian character. So it's first, God-centeredness, or showing that you have a devotion to God, and God-likeness, or this Christian character, these qualities that you think of. So the godliest men and women are those who are most devoted to God. They absolutely love God in the quiet place, in private, before ever in any public place where anyone sees their deeds. But because they love God and are devoted to Him and have placed Him first in their life, their life is like a tree filled with fruit. And when you're around them, you smell the life issuing from their heart and in their behavior. They tend to be the ones who are most compassionate to the people that we want to walk the other way from. They tend to be the ones that are most patient to the ones that we want to give up on. They tend to be the ones who are the most forgiving when you could say you could never forgive. And they tend to be the ones that are the most faithful when you found every reason to stop. They tend to be the ones who are most sincere in their love, never questioning whether or not they truly love you. Bridges also states in his book, Godliness is no optional spiritual luxury for a few quaint Christians of a bygone era. Some of you might have thought of that. Oh, godliness or the godly ones. Those are for those few, few Christians. And they're like the Puritans or they're these reformers or these guys that I've heard about. Those were the godly ones. They made an impact in history. They're in books. And so those are the only godly. And he says, no. Nor are they some group of super saints today. And you say, well, that's just because it's so-and-so. That's just because they grew up around this church forever. That's just because this or that. He says, it's both the privilege and duty of every Christian to pursue godliness. To study diligently the practice of godliness. Well, this morning we're going to hear a call to godliness to put on godly qualities. And it's coming to you from the book of Second Peter. Second Peter chapter 1 verses 5 to 7 will be the text that we look at. Now, let me say this about godliness. It's something that you train in. 
That's what we learned already. And you become over time, not overnight. Uh, It is something that you discipline yourself to be transformed into the image of Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit. We all have a long way to go, right? Yes, that is the answer. And at least we will know which way to go. And that's the way that I want to point you this morning. Don't feel discouraged saying, I don't know one person who would consider me a godly man or a godly woman. Don't be discouraged. We're headed the right direction. And we've got a way to grow. And why I think we all need this today in particular is because we as a local church are at a unique point in the life of our church. We've finished an interesting series and highly theological and practical as we've seen this summer on the end times. And we have one more week until Pastor Ken is back with us. We're excited for him to come back this week. Uh, and, and, and here we are this week, uh, Labor Day weekend, Im- important, but as, the, as we look at the life of our church, we're headed toward grow groups this week. At least a lot of us in here are, are thinking about that, making provisions and plans, and we're, some of us are eager and excited, some of us maybe less excited, but we're, we're headed toward grow groups, and, and ministries are kicking off again. Children's ministry, youth ministry, men and women these ministries are all going to be really launching for this school year, this semester, this fall. And what I want to do, something that I've had the opportunity to do, is study through and teach through Second Peter chapter 1 with our youth, is to, is to look at this small portion that is packed with a lot of punch. And I think it's going to propel us the right way for where we're headed as a church. So I want this to be of great encouragement to you and to help you look at this and go, okay, I know what the Lord wants for me. I know which way he wants me to grow. As you're turning there, and please do open your Bibles and go to 2 Peter chapter 1. It's at the the back of your Bibles, not the very end, but start there and flip kind of left and you'll find it. Uh, You need to know, you need to know that this is a letter that is all about the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's been said before that the little book of Second Peter, only three chapters, right, is like a small house nestled in the streets of Scripture, and the key to get in is at the back door. So look at chapter 3, verse 18 with me. Chapter 3, verse 18. This is how he finishes the letter, and this is really the way for you to understand why he was writing the letter in the first place. He says this as he wraps up and finishes his letter, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. But grow. Grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus. That's what Peter is after in writing this short letter to the churches. We need to know that as you look at chapter 1, that growing in this knowledge of our Savior will help us grow spiritually. That's what the first half of chapter 1 is about, how to grow spiritually. Um, We will also be prepared to understand that the second half of chapter 1 is about how to hold to the truth of the scriptures. If you read chapter 2, you find out he shifts gears and talking about false prophets. And you need to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ so that when false prophets 
fill your ears, literature and TVs that you'll know what to do with them. And chapter three, he looks at the great day of the Lord, the end. And he says, as you grow, you will understand how even the end fits in to all of this. He's talking about our need to understand how great our salvation is as we zoom in on chapter 1. So with me, look at Second uh, Peter chapter 1. Um, I'm going to, to read verses 3 to 11 to give you, this is kind of like a sermon. It's a mini sermon. It's very brief, but he wrote a letter, and you could say that the letter starts with a mini sermon by Peter. It's found in verses 3 to 11. He's talking about our need to understand how great our salvation is and its relationship to our spiritual growth. Peter says here, it's time to grow. Let's see what he says. Verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours, and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So what I want to give to you is three essentials for cultivating a life of spiritual growth. Here's the first one, guard the gospel. Guard the gospel. Guard the gospel and you say, where does this come from? And I tell you, it comes from a tiny little phrase that doesn't even have the word gospel in it or guard. So look at verse 5. He says, for this very reason. For this very reason. Well, he, he uses that, that phrase, a very important phrase, to help you understand the relationship between the two previous verses, verses 3 and 4, and then the verses that we are going to look at, the rest that we just read in his sermon. Verses 3 and 4. Or what God does in our salvation. It's what God did to save you. And give you everything that you need for eternal life and growth in godliness. Then he says, for this very reason. And then he starts to talk about your part. 
So this phrase is really important because it is the hinge between God's part and our part. It's the handoff between these two verses. So I just look at this and go, this is significant. The relationship between what God does and what we do to grow is huge. It's massive. And it has to do with something good that came to you from God. We call that the gospel. What did Peter say God's part was? Well, look carefully with me at verses 3 and 4, just so we can kind of get a sense for what we have from God, what he has done for us. You see a word come up twice, at the beginning of verse 3 and at the beginning of verse 4. At least in the ESV, it is that word granted, granted. He has granted you both his divine power, and then in verse 4, his precious and very great promises. His divine power and his precious promises. Here's the thing. He's saying that when you received Christ, placed into both hands with something that only he could bear the weight of how great they were, his power and his promises. Think about his power for a second. We know who he's talking about because the verse right before that is Jesus, our Lord, end of verse 2. So when he says his, we know he's talking about Jesus, the Lord. And so he says, his divine power, Jesus' divine power. What do we know about Jesus? A lot of prophecy from the Old Testament. But just think for a moment about the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you pick. Think about it. Go there in your mind. You've hopefully read them, studied them, and know them well. And think about the divine power of Jesus, just even in the Gospels alone. When he was born as a baby, he caused kings to tremble. When he came up on people who were filled with unclean spirits, demons... The body hit the ground. The demons realized who was authority. It wasn't them. They begged for mercy. They begged for escape. They begged for some way out, and they were sent out by his power. He walked and, and called men who had, were mid-occupation to leave their nets behind and to follow him. They knew who he was. They dropped their things. They followed. He went to those who had these incurable diseases where they had spent all of their money on all of the best doctors and no one had been found to be able to remedy certain illnesses that plagued them and he cured them and made them well. He went to the home of a little girl who once was sick but sickness had taken her to death and he proved that death had no hold he called her back to life. He was faced with many enemies. They seemed physically stronger than him many times. But he loved them with a power that was greater than their hatred. In dying on the cross, he wasn't defeated by Satan. He disarmed Satan, taking away the power that Satan had in his hand, which was the death and the fear of death and the finality of life apart from God. He defeated death in his resurrection. He ascended to the highest place above all other powers where there's no other name that's named where he sits. Even through the book of Acts, he turned the world right side up because his power was working through his apostles in the church as they preached and ministered. And it says many times, and as we learned this summer, he's coming back in power to make all things new. Let's just think for a second. 
about who this Jesus is. His divine power. And we all go, wow. Has granted to us all things. You know, this involves me. Now I have power. Yes. Everything that pertains to life. And when he says life here, he's talking about eternal life being saved. And everything that pertains to godliness. And we're talking about everything that comes after that point of conversion and being saved. How do I grow to be a godly man, a godly woman? You have all power. Everything that you need to be a godly man, to be a godly woman. How did you receive that? He says in verse 3, through knowledge. You found out about who he was. And the knowledge of him transformed your mind radically, reshaped your heart and gave you new life. He called you to his own glory and excellence. But he's not done. Verse 4. He's granted you something else. Not only divine power, but he's also given you precious and very great promises. Precious and very great promises. These promises are the true statements of Christ in the scriptures about the gospel. Things that he has told us that are guarantees. Things that he has said that become precious to us. When something is precious, you hold it near and it's valuable to you. So these precious and very great promises. You could just think of a couple of them. I I turned to the gospel of John and I found a lot. It was like getting rich right away. Jump into the stream, grab the pan, dig into the dirt, and start shuffling it in that water. And you're just like, whoa, nuggets. That uh, Gospel of John has nuggets laying right there in the streams. Jump into the Gospel of John, and you'll find these very precious and great promises. John six forty, he says this, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son... Speaking of Jesus, and believes in him should have eternal life. Have you looked upon him? Looking in a gaze, in a way of, of, of having your sight fixed on him, where someone showed you him through his word, and you saw him for the first time. That's when eternal life came flooding into your heart and your life. It transformed everything. John 6 50, just 10 verses later, if anyone eats of this living bread that came down from heaven, he will live forever. He speaks this of his own life. Like in the Old Testament, manna came from heaven and, and fell on the ground and they were able to go and gather it up and eat it and, it and it nourished them and helped them get through their wilderness wandering. So too, Jesus came in a similar way. And when he came from heaven to the earth, almost like a living manna, living bread, and he said, eat And he didn't mean to chomp on his fingers. He meant to take in who he was. The things that he taught about himself, the way that he lived, it was to receive him as if he would receive food with hunger and and to digest and and to let it nourish you spiritually. You will live forever. Chapter 8, verse 12. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Follow Christ you know exactly where to take your next step. The world is dark, isn't it? There's so many things that are hard to understand and perceive and and realize and, and even inside us before 
we come to Christ, and even after we come to Christ, we have this sin nature that makes judgment hard, but he floods light onto our path. If you follow him, you will find the light of life. He said in John 10.10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Life and life abundantly. These are just a few of those very precious and great promises that he has made. We find what he is saying here in verses 3 and 4 is that God has done some pretty tremendous things for us. In fact, you're almost like that superhero in almost every superhero movie where it almost kind of starts off at the beginning of their time. And maybe it was in the comic books. I, I never got into them yet. But um, uh, you look and you find this this guy who's in a in a tight situation. There's a robbery. There's a there's a, a big guy coming from the sky on some ship or I don't know something happening. And, and then all of a sudden they need to they need to act. And they find, they have a, a force field. They have some, some shield protecting them. And they're almost surprised by it. And then you, and then you find that they, they learn how to, to channel this, this power. Or maybe they start to turn green and get these little dinky purple shorts, you know, and they have a lot of power and, and rage and, and they're able to do all these things. And you, and, and you, what you find out about these superheroes, the rest of their movies that they're in or these comics that they're in, they're learning how to harness and figure out how to use that power that they didn't even know they had. And so, so many times I feel like that is us spiritually. You sit there and you wonder, what power do I actually have to, to live a life that is one of godliness? Uh, there, there's so much that you have that you don't even realize. And just a simple prayer of just, Lord, show me. Show me what I already have in you would be a great prayer to pray regularly and to see God answer. And he would show you his power that is not just in his life, but because you have yielded your life to him, it is also at work in your life. And these promises that are very precious and very great, and they call you, out of sinful ruts and unrighteous habits, patterns that you feel like, oh, that's just me. I don't know how to get out of that. I don't know how to stop doing that. Hold those promises. They're precious. They, you hold them more and more precious as you turn to them, meditate on them, believe them. And you look down and you go, where'd the rut go of sin? I'm not so deep as I remember being. You keep holding them precious and meditating on them as true. You find there's new ways for the wheels to go now in your life. That's why they're precious. That's why they're great. The big idea here in this short little phrase at the beginning of verse 5 for this very reason is this, that God always goes before your growth. God always goes before your growth. There's nowhere that you're going to go that you need to go that he hasn't already gone. And there's no way that you could look at him and say, I don't have what it takes to be a godly man. He says, you have everything that it takes to be a godly man, to be a godly woman. God always goes before our growth. In, in fact, he goes out in front of us and beckons us forward by his grace. He doesn't get behind us and beat us with a stick and say, go forward. Sometimes we need that. <laughs> you know, like, let's go. Uh, but he goes out in front of us 
and shows us his kindness and his grace in Christ. And we look to him and we see that he compels us forward in obedience, in our obedience, by his love. This is gospel-motivated growth. This is gospel-motivated growth. And God is at work in us before we ever go to work for him. God is at work in us before we ever go to work for him. And as soon as you flip those things around, I'm going to work for God. I'm going to serve for God. I'm going to do this for God. And you take your eyes off of God himself and your eyes are on yourself. You suddenly realize you don't seem to have what it takes. Have you ever run out of gas? Literally. In your car? I have at least three times. I'm not even that old. But I have stories I can tell you. Of times where I was like, I can pretty much make it home. No, I couldn't make it home. Um, that was a misread on the dial there. My bad. Uh, the, there were a couple of times where it didn't really affect anything other than me getting, you know, being late to my soccer practice or something. But there was one that was, that was pretty serious. Probably the worst one out of the two, almost two times that it's happened already in Texas. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> But uh, I had been putting off a lot of important responsibilities in my life. Let me just start with that. Uh, there, there were some issues I just needed to be focused on better and be more responsible about. I'm driving down 105, and the car tells me exactly how many miles I have left to go on this gas tank of gas. I'm thinking, okay, cool, that's, that's nice. I hope that's right. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe I was just testing it to make sure it was right. I don't know, but it got down to one one mile left, okay, and it's staring at me. I've got my wife here, my daughter in the back. She didn't realize what was going on, um, but my wife sure does, and she was kind of like, "Hun, like, you're really pushing it close. She had every right to say whatever she wanted to at that point, because I was in the wrong. And so here it is. I'm, I'm like, there's a gas station. I'll make it there. I pull into the turn lane, and I'm like, those cars, eh, they're going sort of slow. I got this. So I, I pull in, you know, I legally could pull, you know, turn left into the gas station, and it was close. I didn't make anybody slam on their brakes, but it was, again, foolish on my part. Putting my wife, family in danger, I didn't even think that what if I punched it, hit the gas, and had enough to just turn left and then just kind of sputter into oncoming traffic. But not enough to get into the parking lot. I didn't even think about that. The, the Christian life is so similar We're talking about guarding the gospel. You're full always. You're just, you're just, you're not running on empty. You're not making decisions that are putting others in harm's way. You're renewing your mind with the source of power that you need to live for Him. You're coming to the scriptures and you're finding everything that you need to fuel you, to propel you forward, to help you to walk in obedience the right way. And when you fuel up with appreciation for God's love and his forgiveness for you, you pull out into the streets and you you learn to love and forgive others the way that you have learned to love and forgive, be 
be loved and forgiven by God. Think practically a little bit as we think about this transition between this phrase and the next. He says, for this very reason, verse 5, make every effort. If God goes before our growth, we need to stop relying on our own resources. We need to rely entirely on his resources. Maybe you haven't chosen to do that yet. Are you trying to still be a Christian by your own strength? Are you still trying to live a religious life by just pulling yourselves up by your bootstraps? We need to abandon our efforts to try to rearrange our life on the outside and just become a better person and a better Christian. There's no fuel in your tank. It's dangerous. Go to the Gospels. Be in awe of Christ over and over and over and over again. It's very practical. I can tell you, you don't know where to read? Go to the Gospels. Drink deeply. See his power. Hear his promises and come out and go, wow, I sure feel different as I look at my life and the things that are ahead of me. I think I'm ready for today. Do it again. Do it again. Do it again. Do it again. You find yourself going, wow, I, I don't know what I was thinking last year. The way that I lived with that or with him or with her. We find a source of strength that only comes from God's grace. Not from guilt, but from grace. This is the proper motivation for change. Last point I'll say on this before I get to the rest of the message. Are you trying to help somebody else change? Do you have a son or daughter you're thinking about? Do you have someone that works for you? You're trying to tell them, hey, make every effort. Come on, let's go. If you're a believer and you know how God has compelled you to obey him and to give every effort, it is by him being gracious and going out before you. How are you parenting? How are you leading? How are you treating your volunteers? Are you driving them forward saying, this is what you should be doing? Stop doing this. I can't believe you did that again. All these statements that come gracelessly. No gospel. All it is is guilt. Heavy-handed. Shame. You find your kid calling other kids names, and then you go and call them names because you're angry with them. Who's the Who's the kid? We need to understand how even the gospel and how it's at work in our own life to call us to walk godly and we try to help somebody else to make right decisions, that should translate. We should show the same grace that we've been shown. We should show the same forgiveness that we've been shown. We should show the same love that we've been shown when we're trying to motivate others to cultivate spiritual growth or just tie their shoes. All right, second thing I want to talk with you about is expend the effort. This is all build up for this this driving imperative. This is the command to make every effort, make every effort, nothing left out. This is all of it, all out. Once you fix your eyes on Christ, once you hear of his gospel, once you receive grace and the Holy Spirit to empower your life, you can't just hear that and sit down. You can't. 
You can't say, I've decided to follow Jesus. And then go and sit down on your hands. To sit on your hands is to discard the gift that was placed into those hands at the first place. Now, make every effort. Expend the effort. Use it. Utilize it. This means to apply all diligence, like it says in the NAS. It's a perfect connecting phrase between what we looked at and what comes next, this list of godly attributes, qualities. Peter uses the word for effort here. Make every effort. That can be translated earnestness, haste, or zeal. Certain modern expressions come to mind. To to go all out. To hold nothing back. To leave it all on the court. Leave it all on the field. Pedal to the metal. With gas. Uh, There's a lot of different expressions that we use. Talking about going all out. Uh, In softball, you hear guys talking about making that diving catch. And you can't get it just by kind of jogging after where the ball is going. No, you like open stride all you can. And then you go, I need to dive for this. You stretch all the way out physically. Everything is out there and you fall and get hurt and hopefully you come up with the ball in your glove. This is to go all out, every effort, nothing held back as if it was your last attempt every time. And sometimes we think of people who are going all out and, and expending every effort to grow in their faith. And we kind of view them as weird. Sometimes we might view them as, as so different. I mean, zealots or, or maybe they're, you know, these radicals. They're untouchables. Oh yeah, well, she's always like that. She always does that. Well, I'm, I'm not like him. And we just kind of, we almost kind of look down on or, or kind of make comments about that, almost maybe out of self-pity or, or in some, some way to make ourselves feel better. Instead, we should, we should look at those people who are going all out in the faith. We should esteem them. We should honor them. We should look at our own life. Look at our own life. Where does your effort go? If I were to ask you, what is it that you make every effort for? All of you right away say, for Jesus. Yeah. I say, okay. Time out. Let's assume that. Let's talk about your life. What do you go all out for? What do you make every effort for? Some of you start to say, well, family. Some say, well, fashion. Some say, uh, sports. It's probably a lot of us that would uh, say things similar to that. Say, I, I make every effort to know exactly what everybody knows about this topic. I want to be the expert on that. I want to be able to... End every conversation about that because I know so many things about this or that. It consumes you. You're zealous about it. You're driven about it. We're to look at what Christ calls us to do. And he says in the Gospels, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. It's all of you for all of him all the time. All of you for all of him all the time. 
Now, that is not true of any one of us in here. That is not true of any of us, self-included. All of us fall short, but that's the direction we're called to go, to grow. All of you, for all of him, all the time. And again, we're reminded and we need to remember as we start to feel guilty and go, oh, yeah, I'd, okay, I get it. I'm not all out for Christ and for growth. We need to remember that the most amount of virtue can come from the heart that has the gospel on their mind the most. Just like the most amount of vice can come from the heart that has the gospel forgotten and out of their mind. God goes before your growth. When he goes before you, go all out. Make every effort. Final point here. He says to supplement to your faith. To supplement to your faith. Look at verse 5. It says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. He says, supplement your faith with virtue. And he's going to go on in a list of, of these eight qualities. These eight qualities. To supplement to your faith means to add to your faith or, or supply it with something. It's kind of an interesting Greek word if you were to, to kind of dig uh, back a little bit how this word was used. It was used of the one who would provide all the furnishings for a chorus in a play in ancient Greece. So there are these plays with the people wearing togas and different things on their head and maybe masks and and all these things, and and they were called a chorus, a chorus of people. They'd have certain roles that they would play in the play. And uh, there was somebody, a benefactor, who was usually pretty wealthy and would kick in lavishly to be able to have the play go off well, and that was to provide the whole chorus with all of their furnishings. And the play would really come to life. Now, you may not be the type of person who cares about fashion or matching clothes or matching shoes uh, or whatever, or latest trends and uh, styles, but when it comes to our faith, we must see that it is that it is a similar kind of furnishing. That's why I use the word furnish the faith. Not furnace, but furnish, furnish the faith. So you're furnishing your faith with something. You're, you're investing in it. You're, you're, you're putting things onto it to make it play right, to make it go the right way. Maybe when it comes to furnishing, you're more of a, a fixer-upper. Uh, maybe you're like not into clothes, but in your, you're into homes. Little side note, it was kind of odd. Um, maybe providential, that it was just a couple of weeks before I got a phone call from Ken Ramey. Kathy and I got into watching Fixer Upper by Chip and Joanna Gaines, and uh, we're like, oh, this this place, Texas, that's pretty cool that they do that to homes and that kind of thing. Um, maybe the Lord is using that to kind of <laughs> soften the hearts and get us ready for moving this way. But the point is, like unwanted homes, our souls need a demo day. They do. They need a lot to be cleared out so that things can be made new. And once we invest in Christ and we say, okay, I'm, I'm going to follow Christ, then we furnish. Your faith is like a home. You fill the rooms with these qualities. So the qualities that are going to come next are those things that you're furnishing with. 
And so after you watch what they do to totally flip this home that was unwanted to then this home that you're like, I want to go try to find that one and drive by and, uh, and creep on people. Uh, but uh, you want to go try and you know, find it totally furnished and, and fully renovated. And you go, wow. And that's what we're going through. That's what our lives are going through. A, a refurnishing. And who's responsible for it? We are. God goes before your growth. We make every effort to supplement to our faith, to furnish our faith with these qualities. There's really a whole host of activities and attitudes that come once you are truly saved that your life looks so different. Do you know why? Guess what? God is actually in residence in your life. And you start to see those qualities here that are issuing forth from him and not you, him. So he's shining through. And so if anybody were to call you godly, you would immediately look to the Lord and go, he is good. Not, ha, they figured it out. I am godly. You know, that's not what you need to be doing. If you're, if you're truly guided by God's grace and, and motivated to grow by his grace, then you never take glory for yourself when there's any change. He went before you. He enabled you to go forward and and change in these certain ways. So if you're ever making strides forward in in growth in these qualities, it's to him be the glory every time and in every way. This concept of uh, adorning is similar to what Paul says in Titus 2. Titus 2. 2.10. He talks about adorning the doctrine of God. And he talks about this adornment of this doctrine. And it's these qualities, these character traits. He lists off different ones, uh, similar ones. But he says uh, to be sober-minded, self-controlled, pure, kind, submissive. To be of integrity. And all of these things. His grace goes before. His grace trains you and teaches you to say no to ungodliness and to live godly lives. And so it impacts you. And out of gratitude for the gospel, for God and what he's done for you. You put off those ungodly things and you put on those godly things that he's calling you to live for. You live for the king now. Wardrobe change. Later in this letter, Second Peter chapter 3, he closes, uh, sorry, rather, uh, yeah, chapter 3 and verses 10 11 and 12, Peter points to the most momentous event of all history. The day of the Lord that we've looked at this summer. The day of the Lord. And he uses this most momentous event of all history to cause us to live holy and godly lives. In other words, furnish your faith with godliness. The king is coming. The king is coming. So really what comes next, uh, you see faith being the first, then you see uh, virtue, and then after you see virtue, you see knowledge, and then you see self-control. These are like steps or stairs that just kind of one comes after the other, and they they lead a certain direction, and they they build on top of each other, or they proceed from, from the other. That's why it's a pattern, and it's a list there. And I just want you to think just for a little bit about these virtues. Let me say one thing about the first and the last one. The first one, what is it? 
Well, supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge. So you can say the first one is faith. And the last one is brotherly affection with love. It ends there. Faith first, love last. Why? Uh, maybe he just kind of had a random list. Maybe it was intentional. Maybe faith is that foundation that's laid first. And as you trust in Christ, that's what's most important. And love is not only... uh, Love is the logical ending point. You see that love is what binds all these other ones together. Paul says it best in Colossians 3.14. He says in Colossians 3.14, Above all, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So love is the last and greatest virtue there because it ties all the other ones together. I got a little bit lost halfway through the list. Well, if you got to the end, you've left on a good note. If you're loving God and loving others better, you're doing these other things. They, They take all these other qualities of godly people and they tie them together. That's why love caps it off. Let me just put up the ones that are in between. The ones that are in between faith and love. The first you see virtue, knowledge, self-control. The next slide has three more, but I want you to just kind of think for a moment. What is it that God wants you to work on? Take time to study these things. Virtue being moral excellence. Moral excellence. It's really this God-given ability to excel in, in heroic, courageous deeds for him. To be a man of virtue, of knowledge. This isn't just the knowledge of the head, but this is actually applied knowledge. So you know what to do with God's word. You know what to do with his truth. Self-control. This is being able to literally hold oneself in. But I want to go do this. I want to have that. I wish this was done now. Where is your self-control? You can study these terms more and at length. At other times, let me give you the other three. Steadfastness, godliness, and brotherly affection. Steadfastness. Some of you are going through trials. And you need perseverance. And you need patience. And endurance. To do what is right. Even though you feel like there's no strength left. That's what this steadfastness is. Godliness. It's a reverence for God. A devotion to God, like we've mentioned. Brotherly affection, you know what? You're supposed to be friends with each other. Yes, you, friends with each other. Loving friendships, spiritual friendships. You go, okay, we found things to relate on. Do you relate on a spiritual level? Well, no, we're warming up to it. Well, go. Spiritual friendships. Love for our body to grow in that way. Our aim should be to see growth in these qualities. No one will be perfect in these things, but we know which way to grow. Let me end by saying this. Picture your spiritual life like a vineyard. Like a vineyard, there are fields and there are rolling hills with rows after rows of vines. There's a steady source of water that flows, bringing all that you need to your vines. All the tools are in the barn. Your house sits right at the front and you can see over it all. Managing it, seeing just perfectly. The seed is delivered in season. There's no shortage of provision. 
The laborers show up ready for direction. That scene is like your spiritual life. What do you do? Do you stay in the house and sit down? Or do you go out into the fields to labor? Do you go out into the lives to love? Do you go into the meetings to learn? How ready are you to pick up the shovel to do work? How ready are you to do the hard work of dying to your sin and and loving others and leading the way? Our prayer is that we would ask the Lord, all you have done for us in the gospel, make us godly men and women. We pray. God, thank you for this morning. We thank you for this passage that calls us to action, to make every effort. And many of us are weary and tired and and feel no strength left. And some of us have found other things to give our strength to. Lord, as we refocus our minds on the power of the gospel, the promises of the gospel, all in Christ, which we have in full. Lord, use that, that great love for us and the reminders that we regularly have to motivate us to growth and to pursuing work, effort, and pursuit in virtue, pursuit of these godly characteristics. Lord, I pray that you would take our church through a season of great growth and that we would get our hands dirty when we would be all active and participating. We would understand why we are going forward. It's because you went before us and you've called us to a totally different life than we once lived. You've set us free so that we could work in your fields. So Lord, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. In your name, amen.